Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. You've heard of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that ends legal human slavery in the country. But fewer people have heard of the first 13th Amendment, passed by Congress in 1861 in an attempt to compromise with secessionists by guaranteeing federal non-interference with slavery. Fewer still have thought of the first 13th Amendment as anything more than a trivial footnote to the secession crisis. One of those who thinks it's much more than that, both as history and perhaps as a warning, is Professor Daniel Crofts, author of Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, The Other 13th Amendment, and The Struggle to Save the Union. We'll talk with Dan Crofts tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you once again from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building 
on the campus of East Carolina University, but not representing the university or speaking for it, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do here. Happy to be back in the office, the maybe only person on the floor at this time of night, uh, but no longer sick, thanks to the good wishes uh, many of you sent. Uh, I'm over the flu, over the pneumonia, back in action, and ready to resume full speed ahead with uh, Civil War talk radio and teaching and everything else that's going on. Uh, if you've listened to this show uh, more than a few times, you've probably heard me at some point complain about something on campus, some wrinkle in academic life, especially when I was uh, serving as department chair. There, were, there was a lot to complain about. But sometimes things happen that just remind you why we do this. Uh, and this week, one one after another of these things have occurred uh, Yesterday morning, I returned the first midterm exam in the U.S. History Survey class, and a student, uh, after getting her exam back, came up after class said, you know, I saw the student at the end of the row last week when she turned her exam in and it was blank. Uh, you know, she must have done badly. Could you let her know that some of us are meeting outside of class and uh, to study, and we'd, we'd like her to join us, see if we can help her do better next time? And that has never happened uh, in in the 15 years I've been here. But uh, this student who didn't know the person at the end of the row spontaneously wanted to help a fellow student who she saw struggling. Uh, things like that make make teaching uh, worthwhile. Another thing, uh, many of you contributed to the cause of building Heritage Hall here on the campus of East Carolina University. That project is still very much underway. I attended a meeting today with the uh, various people, the uh, exhibit designer for the, the space that will be Heritage Hall, the architect for the entire building, which will also house a bunch of university functions, uh, the university's program uh, project director, the university historian, my colleague John Tucker, who knows more about ECU than anybody else. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm really healthy, but still coughing. Uh, and and we just had uh, it was just an outstanding meeting to get these all these different perspectives talking about what Heritage Hall ought to have and how it will come together. And it's really going to happen. It's going to be a very nice uh, space with an interesting and I think uh, accurate and, and meaningful interpretation of the university's history. It will not be a cheerleading site by any means. And uh, it was just one of those things that reminded me what uh, is so interesting about public history. And I'll throw in one more. Uh, when I'm not uh, doing Civil War talk radio, one side hobby is uh, calling dances, contra and square dances, traditional American dance forms. And we have a local dance every month here attendance has been kind of dwindling. We used to get a lot of dance students to come out. So today I went over to visit a dance professor and say, let your students know we're having a dance this weekend. And it turned out he used to uh, work at the Fort Wayne Ballet. Uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana is where I came from last stop before Greenville uh, 15 years ago. And so we reminisced about that town in northeast Indiana, which when I left it was a, uh, a well, put it this way, when you traveled from 
Indiana to Michigan, or Michigan to Indiana, you had to remember to set your watch back 45 years. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, the, the young ballet professor tells me Fort Wayne has been overrun by hipsters. It's a happening place. There are all kinds of new uh, restaurants and, and stores and art endeavors. And just good to hear that the, the old town is doing much better. So some some weeks things go your way. Some weeks they don't. This was, this was a good one. Um, next week will be a good one on the show as we have uh, a book on a topic about which few of us know much at all. It's the story of Julia Wilbur, uh, anti-slavery activist, uh, written by Paula Whitaker. It's called an Unc- A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, and we'll learn about her. Following week, Eric Lee Smith will be here. He is the designer of several uh, board and computer games that deal with Civil War topics, and we'll talk about how he does that. We'll take a break for spring break after that and then return on the 14th of March. Matt Borowick will return to the show to bring us up to date on Civil War roundtables around the country. Michael Fitzgerald will be our guest the following week. Uh, His most recent book deals with uh, Alabama from Civil War to Redemption in the Cotton South, a story of Reconstruction, end of the war in the post-war period. So we'll hear from him, and more will follow, but we'll stop there and uh, just leave you with the reminder, as always, www.impedimentsofwar.org is the place to go on the internet to find out what's happening on the show. You can go from there to the Facebook page, uh, leave comments there, leave your likes. We're well over 1,000 likes now. Uh, Apparently, there are some sites that have more than 1,000 likes, so we're going to have to get on the stick and beat some of them uh, but but we're doing fine there you can buy the books you hear about on the show through the website uh, uh, in many cases go to Amazon from there or from Facebook and that will help out the show and you can always donate directly to Civil War Talk Radio and our book fund used for the purchasing of anything at all could be books, could be anything uh, not tax deductible, but then again, no deductions are tax deductible anymore. So uh, I don't know if I still have to legally remind you of that. Uh, now it's just purely a way to show your support for the show and encourage me to uh, keep buying books until I literally am crushed by their weight as I look around the office. There's not a not, not a square foot of wall space left at this point. Well, some books are more worth putting on the shelf than others, and tonight is uh, one that is especially worthwhile, a really uh, interesting and, in many ways, I found very unsettling and uh, disturbing book for reasons I'll share with the author in just a few moments. The, the book is called Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, subtitled The Other 13th Amendment and a Struggle to Save the Union. The author is Daniel W. Crofts, a uh, friend of the show. He's been here before, and uh, glad to have him back. Uh, Dan, are you there? Yes, Jerry, it's good to hear from you, and uh, congratulations on shaking off the flu bug, and uh, hope you're feeling good now. And well, let I, me just also say I'm delighted you're going to be talking to Michael Fitzgerald in a few weeks. Uh, that book on Reconstruction in Alabama is an outstanding book. 
Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. I use his his uh, short book, uh, Splendid Failure, in my Civil War Reconstruction class. Uh, I've used it in the past, and I'm looking forward to reading the Reconstruction uh, in Alabama book. I'm sure it will be good. Mm-hmm. So uh, your your book that we talked about last time about the, uh, uh, the, the, the public man, who was the public man, uh, right. uh, was just a really interesting uh, historical uh, detective story, all kinds of uh, subplots in it, but also a story of the secession winter. And this book is very much a, a story of that. Let me start out by pointing out uh, to listeners uh, most of you, I'm sure, have seen the movie Lincoln, which details the story of the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. Uh, Dan, your book opens almost cinematically with a dramatic description of the congressional uh, session leading to the very late night, early morning passage of the original 13th Amendment, 1861. So my first question is, is this a future screenplay that I have just read? <laughs> Good question, but that's not up to me. Um, uh, I, I suspect it isn't, because as you hinted in introducing me, it's an unsettling and disturbing book in some ways. It mm-hmm. kind of cuts against the grain of what I think Americans, for the most part, would like to know. We tend to kind of favor a sort of upbeat, cheerful view of our history, and this book suggests that uh, when the great crisis occurred in the secession winter, that uh, it was not anywhere near as clear-cut as we, uh, as we tend to think back. That is, the Republican Party, uh, even though ostensibly anti-slavery, and even though favoring what Lincoln called, uh, you know, the, uh, the ultimate uh, uh, whatever. Um, extinction of slavery. Extinction, there we go. Yes. Um, Lincoln also at one point in the Lincoln-Douglas debate said, well, you know, ultimate extinction, maybe 100 years. And uh, what we find is that uh, at the moment he becomes president, uh, Lincoln is saying, uh, it's okay with me uh, if this constitutional amendment that just passed the Senate at 5 in the morning is made part of the Constitution, uh, which says that Um, We're going to amend the Constitution and make it explicit that Congress has no power to abolish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state. It's, uh, you know, the circumlocution about persons held to uh, labor or service, you know, that's just the 1787 Constitution sort of uh, slightly wrapped up and reiterated. And um, so Lincoln, as he becomes president, uh, is ready to okay an amendment to the Constitution uh, that would have made slavery more secure, probably more permanent. Um, and for good reason. Frederick Douglass, the great African American abolitionist whose birthday we're celebrating today, mm-hmm. was on the outside looking in. And uh, in his view, the inaugural address fulfilled his worst fears, said it was wholly discreditable and evidence of cowardly baseness for Lincoln to have taken office by prostrating himself before the slaveholding oligarchy. Um, so this is an unsettling book. It, it, it kind of runs against the grain of what we think we know about American history. 
But having well, said this, I will quickly say that sure. you know Lincoln, once in power, and once the 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 Southern secessionists create a war, um, you know Lincoln certainly does earn his his title that we've already that we've attached to him all these years, uh, the Great Emancipator. But that was not his intention. His intention when he first took office. Well, let me. Boy, there's so many good places to start. Um, let's back up for the benefit of listeners who haven't uh, studied the secession winter as, as closely, perhaps. Um, it might, it's worth asking, why was this amendment passed? Uh, it, it, gives, it, it makes explicit that the federal government has no power to interfere with slavery where it already exists. Um, right. So... Two questions. We don't have time to answer them both, but we can get started here. One is, uh, why did Republicans, including Abraham Lincoln, support such an amendment? Uh, well, let's let's start with that. Why why would you support such an amendment if you were well, fundamentally anti-slavery? Basically, two reasons. Um, mm-hmm. One, to try to prevent a war. And two, to try to persuade reasonable Southerners, especially those in the Upper South, that all this huff and puff about the uh, Republicans endangering slavery uh, was, was not accurate, and that that uh, if you white Southerners come to your senses, you'll realize that uh, uh, that the uh, the danger that the secessionists are talking about has been. Uh, uh, cooked up and imagined, and, uh, and this constitutional amendment uh, is designed to help you to kind of see things straight. Now, it, it sounds on first blush, uh, and, and certainly Frederick Douglass said this, that this was a great surrender, a great coming down, a backing away from principle, but many uh, Republicans, including Lincoln, didn't see it that way at all. Uh, what we'll do now is take a short break and come back with that as our, our first question in the next section. Uh, how this actually conforms to Republican principle. We'll do that when we talk more with our guest, Daniel W. Crofts, author of Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, The Other 13th Amendment, and the Struggle to Save the Union. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dan Crofts. He's the author of Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, the Other 13th Amendment, and the Struggle to Save the Union. Um, Dan, today is Valentine's Day 2018, and when I go home after the show tonight, I'm going to promise my wife that I will not date any supermodels uh, henceforward. And I can do that without giving anything up because I have no power to attract supermodels to begin with. <laughs> um, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, the Republicans, uh, are the Republicans giving anything up, or do they think they ever had the power to restrict slavery in the states? Well, a bit of context here. It yes. became a absolute, um, um, you know, universal of anti-slavery politics, starting with the Liberty Party in 40 and 44, the Free Soil Party in 48 and 52, and the Republican Party from the mid-50s forward, that there was no power to interfere with slavery in the states where it existed. Uh, there were always a small circle of abolitionists who thought otherwise, and some of them tried to make the argument that, well, um, you know, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution prohibits any interference with uh, life or liberty without due process of law, and uh, that really means that the Constitution is an anti-slavery document, but by and large, and almost without exception, uh, anti-slavery politicians um, accepted that there was no constitutional power to interfere with slavery in the states where it existed. Now, in this sense, then, you could say Republicans are giving nothing up, but many Republicans weren't happy with this amendment. Indeed, a majority of Republicans, both in the House and Senate, vote against it. But just enough vote for it to be able, with the votes of Democrats and Upper South um, representatives, uh, to secure the necessary two-thirds majorities in both houses of Congress. And the attitude of the Republican moderates was, as you just suggested, well, hey, we've already said we wouldn't touch slavery in the states where it existed. 
it's no big deal to put it in the Constitution. But the more hardline Republicans said, it is a big deal to put it in the Constitution. This is a, a shame and a disgrace. It's backing down. Uh, the hardline Republicans, uh, people in the tradition of uh, uh, Joshua Giddings, uh, the outspoken uh, anti-slavery congressman from Ohio, uh, they had long been in favor of what they called denationalizing slavery, saying the federal government shouldn't do anything at all to uphold or sustain the slave system. Um, they wanted much more than just territorial restriction. They wanted to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, to restrict or eliminate the interstate slave trade, uh, to prevent additional slave states from entering the Union, uh, and to repeal the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, the, the kind of least common denominator that ends up holding the Republican Party together is simply the pledge uh, to prevent future expansion. Uh, but the flip side of that was, well, we don't like the fact that slavery exists in the states where it is already, but we have no power to touch it. So you've got this division in the Republican Party between those, let's call them the moderates, who say, well, we're not really giving anything up, and if we can prevent a war and keep the Upper South in the Union, that's worth doing. Uh, whereas um, the more hardline Republicans said, hey, uh, we should be doing nothing that in any way, shape, or form appeases the slaveholders, and, uh, and this amendment clearly is uh, some kind of sellout. Now, when the amendment is being debated, this is the the first months of 1861, and South Carolina and six other states have already seceded. So, right. so the crisis is well underway. Uh, since the motive for secession, as as uh, you know, Charles Dew and others have, have demonstrated beyond any question, was to protect the institution of slavery then surely this amendment ought to have put them at their minds at rest. Uh, the Republicans are renouncing any desire to touch slavery. Uh, what was the secessionist response to this? Were, were they not happy about it? It wasn't directly aimed at secessionists. They were already considered a lost cause um, by, by early 1861. It was aimed at the states that were hanging in the balance. You're talking mm. to me from North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, it and Virginia and Tennessee are the three key states here. Uh, they were the kind of um, firewall, if you will. And, and the hope of the conciliators, the moderates, was to keep secession from spreading up from the Deep South. Um, keep in mind that two-thirds of white Southerners lived in the Upper South in uh, Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, and the states uh, along the border up north of that. And so if they could be kept in the Union, the hope was that, well, the idiots in the Deep South, even though they're currently crazed, uh, will have a sober second thought, not right away, but down the road a ways. They'll see that they've gone out on a limb by themselves, and they'll be looking for some kind of exit. Um, and since we don't want a shooting war, let's uh, kind of keep the door open so that they can come crawling back uh, down the roadways in the future. Uh, you, your book makes very clear the division, uh, and, and William Freeling and others have, have done this as well, between the Upper South and the Deep South. The, uh, the Upper South was very reluctant to secede initially, and as you point out, regarded the 
the, themselves was in a very difficult position that that they recognized slavery was in much more jeopardy in a war than it would be uh, in the Union. Yes, these are themes that loomed large in my first book uh, now almost 30 years ago uh, with the title Reluctant Confederates, which is about Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee, the three big Upper South states that voted. You know, these are elections in February 1861 where the voters in those states uh, on the question of do you think getting out of the Union is a good idea, they voted very emphatically, no, we do not. Now, let me go back to something you said at the beginning about how many Americans view the the war as being a war, uh, not just about slavery, but, but an anti-slavery war from the start. Uh, and, and your book at a number of points makes explicit your view that that's not the case and that this uh, this amendment protecting slavery demonstrates where the Republican Party's mind was at in terms of preserving union in 1861. Um, my question is, is, is there something of a straw man there? Uh, do historians really argue that the Civil War was an anti-slavery war from the start, or is the consensus more that it was launched as a Union war but became an anti-slavery war? Well, I think that James Oak's book, Freedom National, is often regarded as the book that you would first look at uh, in answering the question you just posed. Mm-hmm. And from Oak's way of thinking, um, it was a war about slavery before it even began. It, uh, the Republican Party uh, was, in effect, uh, on board for emancipation uh, even before the war starts. And uh, uh, at the time that I argue, this is you know February, March, 1861, where I argue the Republicans were still hoping to prevent a war, um, Oaks would say that uh, they were already gearing up and eager to fight. Uh, I would say that some were, uh, but I'm certain that most were not. And I am especially clear that um, that Lincoln was not. Uh, I think at the moment he takes office uh, on March 4, he's still hoping to prevent a war. Um, he said as much in his uh, iconic second inaugural. Well, it, it, this is uh, a, a reach, and, and if you listeners, if you haven't read the book yet, this will make more sense when you do. Um, as I was reading this, I, I began thinking, is James Oakes to Dan Crofts what Josh Giddings or John Bingham is to the Southern Secessionists? And by that I mean you you use Oakes as an example of a historian who says uh, the, the Republicans were all about uh, ending slavery from the get-go. And my response is, is Oakes not somewhat out on a limb? Is, is he not the outlier and that most historians would say, no, that it really was a war for Union initially. You know, Gary Gallagher's book is titled The Union War. Uh, was it not, is that not the mainstream opinion? And just as Southern secessionists picked on the few abolitionists, the Giddings, the, the Garrisons, uh, to say that's what all Northerners think, uh, is it fair to say Oaks is what all historians think? I, I'm, I'm challenging that. No, I'm not saying that's what all historians think. You're quite right that... Um, People like Gary Gallagher would see it much more my way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
Oakes is far from being out there by himself. Um, uh, Adam Goodhart is out there with him. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a new book by a young scholar whose name I think is Graham Peck uh, that certainly points that way. And uh, more generally, um, it squares with uh, what I would call the uh, the sort of history that that Americans would like to have. That is, uh, um, we we we. I, I at one point in my book I call it a a kind of a, a wish for what you might call feel-good history, um, mm-hmm. a history you can feel good about, and and that's in one sense understandable. Um, uh, we like to see history as a source of, in some respects, sort of uplift and inspiration. Uh, but that whole tendency uh, makes a hash of the uh, political history of the crisis that leads to the Civil War. It, it certainly does that, and it also, uh, it, it, well, as you point out uh, again in your book, for for a hundred years after the war, the lost cause interpretation tended to hold sway. Uh, slavery had nothing to do with it, and people can feel good mm-hmm. about a war where slavery is not involved. Don't have mm-hmm. to even look at that ugly thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, then we have the uh, emancipationist view today, which uh, takes us back to, uh, you know, Robert Penn Warren and the treasury of virtue argument that Northerners feel we won the war, we ended slavery, we can feel good and not do any, mm-hmm. any additional thing. I mm-hmm. guess I'm, I'm a little more optimistic about the sophistication of emerging interpretations of the war that, that most Thoughtful people who read about the war are aware it was not as, as as cut and dry as you suggest we would like it to to be, and that there's a recognition that the war evolved into an anti-slavery war rather than it began as one. Although that certainly is the way many you know people initially get it that it's it's just a pure good guy against bad guy, freedom against slavery war. Uh, although that's not a popular interpretation in the South, uh, and 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 a hard sell. I think many Americans have an image of Lincoln as somebody who uh, um, was looking for some way to get rid of slavery when he was out on the Illinois frontier splitting rails as a young guy, and mm-hmm. his whole career uh, was a kind of uh, search uh, so that he could finally get the sort of handhold that he could uh, bring his dream to fruition. Um, now... Um, that's oversimplifying it, but but it's certainly out there, and and uh, you're right that there are you know more sophisticated uh, scholars uh, who wouldn't uh, follow that, but uh, but but there it is. Doggone it! I mean, the, the Lincoln <laughs> movie, um, of course, has nothing to say about this project. Um, <laughs> Uh, the Lincoln that it wants to have, and that was very well received because it's quite a good movie, um, mm-hmm. is the Lincoln who's trying to bring about um, the real 13th Amendment in 1864 and 5. Uh, and, and good enough. But the implication of the movie is that that's where Lincoln always was. And it's, it, it, it neglects the, the dimension of time and the way in which the war changes everything. Um, and and uh, back to Oaks for a moment. 
I mean, this yeah. guy is pretty prominent. He's one of the uh, the panel that just selected uh, the Lincoln Prize that was announced on Monday. Um, he's he's a heavier hitter than I am, and uh, uh, I must say I was thrilled that the Lincoln Prize went to Ed Ayers, uh, who mm-hmm. is number one extremely deserving, and number two. Yes somebody who sees the situation much more as Gary Gallagher and I do. Well, uh, James Oakes has been on the show a couple times. Uh, He and I are on the the board of the Lincoln Studies Center that uh, Doug Wilson and Rod Davis run out at Knox College, so we we see each other there every year. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm always impressed by his work. I always enjoy talking with him and and hearing about it. Um, I think there's certainly room to challenge it. I, I do think he reveals some new things. Uh, but let me be clear to listeners uh, how much I like this current book and that while I've been uh, pushing Dan on some of these points, that's just because it's such an engaging book. And and the the, the question of, of how Americans currently interpret the, the war is, while the underlying reason perhaps that moved you to write the book and, and a point you want to make, uh, the book is about the, the secession crisis and particularly the role that this amendment plays. And it's very revealing and uh, makes very clear, as as we, we've said here tonight, that Republicans were circumscribed in their anti-slavery by their, their loyalty to, to the Constitution. That didn't uh, – and that was almost universal among anti-slavery Republicans. Uh, we're, it looks like we're up against another break. When we come back, I want to ask you about the uh, the, the relative – roles of the mutual misunderstandings between secessionists on the one hand and uh, northern republicans on the other Uh, because when i said at the outset of the show that this is a disturbing book in some ways that was one thing that i found uh very unsettling uh when thinking of it in comparison perhaps to uh contemporary polarization so we'll take a short break. We'll come back and talk more with Daniel W. Crofts, author of Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, The Other 13th Amendment, and The Struggle to Save the Union. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dan Crofts, author of Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, The Other 13th Amendment, and the Struggle to Save the Union. We've been talking about the amendment passed by Congress in the spring of 1861, just literally hours before Lincoln's inaugural address, in which the uh, amendment proposed that Congress would have no power to uh, deal with slavery in states where it already existed, uh, and that would be an unamendable, unamendable permanent amendment. Uh, of course, it was never ratified. The actual 13th Amendment in 65 ended slavery in America legally, but this was a product, uh, the first one, of an attempt to try to detour, derail the Civil War from breaking out. Uh, Dan, you have a chapter called Mutual Misconceptions. Right. Could you talk about the, 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 those misconceptions between Northerners and Southerners? Right. Uh, good question. Um, certainly, um, the, the thing that creates the crisis, I think, is the, the panic and fear that swept across the Deep South, uh, this idea that the Republicans were basically John Brown in disguise, um, that the moment they took power, uh, that they would look for ways to kind of uh, undermine uh, slavery, uh, and in the more hysterical versions that were so often uh, reiterated out on the stump, um, uh, especially by Southern Democrats, the argument that uh, that Republicans, uh, if you give them half a chance, uh, will. Uh, fire up um, slaves to murder uh, white women and children. Uh, I think that's the driver. Um, I think it's it's ridiculous. Um, and Republicans thought it was ridiculous. In fact, they thought it was so ridiculous they refused to take it seriously. And that's why Republicans are, for the most part, uh, astonished at what happens uh, in the weeks after Lincoln's election when when it turns out the Deep South wasn't just blowing smoke, but that um, that this uh, panic and fear uh, had real popular roots. Uh, and so you get this runaway crisis that, that nobody expected, at least nobody among the Republicans. Uh, um, so there, there's, there's misconceptions all the way around. Uh, um, and further adding to these misconceptions are the misconception Republicans had about the Upper South. Uh, they they like to believe that uh, these folks in the Upper South that were opposed to secession uh, would never uh, be part of a war, um, and therefore that this whole plan that I've been describing would work, you know, keep secession confined to the Deep South, keep the Upper South out of it, and sooner or later um, the uh, the Deep South will have to retreat. But what people in the North didn't understand is that when push came to shove, uh, the folks in the Upper South, even though on the question of is secession a good idea, the answer was no. When the question became on April 15, 
which side are you on in a war? Then, my God, hundreds of thousands of people in the Upper South turned on a dime um, and said, we don't think breaking up the Union is a good idea, but we've been asked to uh, uh, choose sides in a war, and we, we are not going to fight against our Southern brothers. And, uh, and so suddenly, you've got a nation that hadn't existed before down in the South. And it's a lot bigger than the Deep South. It includes most of um, Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Now, in all three of those states, there are disaffected regions, but in the areas that were firmly under Confederate control, that is, accepting northwestern Virginia and accepting East Tennessee, uh, the Confederacy commanded enormous popular allegiance. um, and um, I think many of my fellow scholars uh, exaggerate the extent to which there was, uh, um, you know, dissension within the Confederacy. Uh, uh, the Confederates fought and died in proportions that far exceed any other group of Americans in any other war the United States has fought in. Uh, the Confederacy was a real country, and the only way to have it be something else was to uh, simply um, pound it down militarily uh, until they pulled up the white flag. So the this was certainly a failure on, on the part of uh, pre-war Republicans to recognize this uh, regional loyalty in the Upper South, but they – as you said, they could not believe that the Republicans in the North could not believe that secessionists were serious. Uh, when secessionists argued, every Northerner is a is a John Brown abolitionist. Everyone wants to foment a slave rebellion. They all want to interfere with slavery where it exists. Uh, Republicans had said over and over, Lincoln among them, over and over that was not true. That was not the case. Uh, so. Even even though they knew, uh, you know, Jefferson Davis, others actually in Washington, knew that their Republican colleagues were not uh, abolitionists, but the the fires they had fanned were out of control by that time, and and well, so you have. It's it's one of the ironies and tragedies that these Southern Democratic leaders wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to uh, rouse people on the stump. Uh, with stuff that they couldn't themselves have believed was true, uh, but um, they um, uh, they overdid it, and it got away from them. And I am convinced that most Southern Deep South political leaders uh, had a kind of crisis of their own um, in November, December, and you've got a situation where the mob is um, heading off in its own direction and you're supposedly a leader and do you abdicate or forfeit or do you try to somehow uh, stay out in front and assume that there must be strength in numbers and that uh, uh, that you know something will turn up and we can uh, uh, we can wriggle out of this thing somehow um, I think I think it got away from them well, this I, I, knowing how long it takes to write a book like this, and, and when it came out, uh, certainly you did not write this with 2018 in mind. But uh, it, at, at the risk of a, a brief break from the 19th century wall to the 21st, uh, right. today Democrats think uh, all Republicans are racist bigots who hate the poor. 
Republicans think all Democrats are unpatriotic socialists who hate the rich. Uh, both are obviously wrong, but both hear it over and over from their friends, their websites, their social media, their commentators on the internet and TV, to the point that some people seem to believe this, even though in real life the people they know who disagree with them are not monsters with horns. But but that's what they're told over and over. Are we in for a war? We'd better not be. Um, but you're quite right to worry about it because the the polarization and the stereotyping today, uh, I think, is at a level that hasn't been seen uh, since uh, certainly civil war and reconstruction, and it's it's very worrisome. Um, I, I myself do not think it's completely a two-way street. I think the uh, uh, the distortions of the Republican right are more uh, completely off base, uh, fueled by uh, their uh, television network, Fox. Um, uh, but you're quite right that there certainly is a kind of um, kind of sort of hunker down mentality on both sides. And it's accompanied by what, you know, political scientists and demographers have pointed out as the big sort, that people more and more are choosing to associate only with people who agree with them politically. Um, well, and, and that's exactly, uh, you know, from, from here in academia, professors tend to be on the left, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I hear people reinforcing each other's views back and forth, uh, mm-hmm. where I want to say, hey, aren't we in an evidence-based discipline? Shouldn't we look at all sides of the picture? Um, as opposed to simply ratifying what each other thinks. Uh, and, and and I bring this up, let's get back to the 19th century. In the context here, uh, on a number of occasions, you point out, for example, when uh, Virginia voted against secession, initially, or when Tennessee voted not to even have a convention about secession, there was a sense of relief in the North, a feeling we, we've dodged this bullet. Uh, you know, it, it, The idea of something as, as unthinkable as a civil war was just unimaginable. And when these little upticks happened back toward peace, everybody went, oh, thank goodness, we're not going to have a war after all. Uh, right, but right. we know the end of the story. No, you are going to have yep. a war, and you're going to lose 700,000 men. So. Yep. When you're in the moment reading your book, month by month, week by week, you're going up and down with these people. You for, you know, you it makes you aware that we're in. You know, someone 50 years from now is reading the book about 2018 and saying they thought things were okay, but they had no idea what would happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 your book really portrays how contingent and how uh, naive people were at that time. Indeed. Um, Virginia voted on um, February 4, a month before Lincoln's inauguration. And when the word reached the North, um, there was rejoicing. Uh, In my book a while back about reluctant Confederates, I uh, recreate the scene where uh, some of the Adams family are writing letters to each other about how people were out skating on Boston Common and... uh, uh, or I'm sorry, Jamaica Pond in Boston, mm-hmm. and we're we're uh, uh, we're all uh, celebrating uh, the wonderful news that secession was was killed dead, that 
Uh, Virginia, you know, is not just an ordinary state. Virginia oh. is the home of the author of the Declaration of Independence, the person who did more than anybody else to make the Constitution happen, and everybody knows uh, who was, um, you know, first in war and first in peace and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Uh, the feeling was, if you have Virginia on your side, that secession isn't, you know, isn't going to fly. It, it, it was going to work. Let me ask, we've only got a few minutes left, but I want to sure. get this question in. Um, your work follows uh, Michael Holt and other political historians and really drawing our attention to the importance of politics, not just underlying social movements, but the actual day-to-day interactions of politicians. Um, Holt, however, tends to, in, in my view, argue that, that bad politicians kept stirring up trouble, uh, thus we get a war, which implies there's no real underlying issue. If we had better politicians, we could have let African Americans suffer under slavery uh, for another hundred years with better politicians. Uh, you, I, I get a sense that you, you see a deeper issue. Uh, could the war have been delayed or permanently put off just by better politics? I think you're being a little hard on, on, on Michael Holt. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would say that uh, there is an element of, uh, of, of what you've just alluded to there, um, um, but he is always kind of focused on the, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts and interplay of the political players themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but just a few minutes ago, we were basically agreeing with each other about his uh, uh, his basic contention there. That is that uh, that the North and South uh, brutally misunderstood each other, and that there was room mm-hmm. for blame on both sides. Uh, it 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 does, you know, transcend just sort of narrow what you might call uh, incompetence uh, among politicians. It's it's got a uh, a more powerful dynamic of, of groups of people who uh, who uh, uh, tragically uh, misunderstand each other. But I used the so, word tragically there, and, mm-hmm. and you know, many would turn that around and say, "Hey, slavery was a tragedy. The only way we can end it is by fighting a war. Uh, let's start fighting." And. Um, it- you know, there were there, as you say, there were those who who said that. Not many, but uh, but that was was certainly out there as well. well we're unfortunately and and probably mm-hmm. many Americans would say it now. In, in uh, retrospect, in, sure. In, in right. retrospect, uh, right. I'd say that's the kind of conventional wisdom. You know, if it was worth a war uh, to end slavery, let's uh, let's uh, let's march out and start fighting. Well, we are at the end of our time. Uh, There's so much else in this book, uh, discussion of John Bingham, the father of the 14th Amendment, the, uh, the, the nuts and bolts log rolling of how this thing, the 13th, uh, original 13th, got passed. Uh, there's high drama there. There, are, There is detective work uh, showing how individuals change their votes. All kinds of interesting things. Uh, it's thought-provoking. It's... Uh, disconcerting to to watch a society fall apart when living in 2018 uh, and reading about what happened in 1861 and makes you want to go out and talk to someone on the other side and grab them by the hand and say, look at me, I'm not a monster and you're not either. Let's stop being this way. Uh, That was the effect this book had on me, Dan, and I really uh, appreciated it. Uh, And I 
I want to thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Well, and I thank you for making such interesting connections between past and present. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm